Hi, and welcome back to Apology, a podcast about books and reading. I'm Jesse Pearson, the founder and editor of Apology Magazine. Today's guest is the writer David Means. Known mainly for his short stories, though he has also written one novel called Histopia, David has had six collections released, including this year's Two Nurses Smoking. David has been widely published in places like The New Yorker, The Parish Review, Harper's, and more. He is considered one of the most important and relevant short story writers working today. I really like his work, especially on a sentence level. He writes lucid, soulful sentences, and after all, the sentence is where everything begins. Maybe, maybe the word, actually, but let's go with the sentence for our purposes today. Anyway, the opening sentences of his stories are particularly strong. The first bit of a short story is so important, it's often what makes me decide whether to continue or stop reading. David's opening sentences are stories in and of themselves. I highly recommend his work, starting with his new book. Oh, and one side note, you will hear me forget the name of a novel by James Purdy in the conversation that follows. The book I was thinking of is called Narrow Rooms, and it's great and um, rather gnarly. I suggest that, too. But anyway, now, without further ado, here's David Means on the Apology Podcast. So what are you reading right now? Yeah, that's that's a complicated question. Um, and I think part of it is because I'm in the pre-publication, you know, my book comes out tomorrow, so I've been in this sort of pre-publication anxiety zone um, between, you know, the exposure of the public publication and then this sort of sense of, like, what what's going to happen and where am I in relation to the work. One person I've been reading, I've, I've been reading all of the Adam Phillips, the uh, psycho analytic writer who writes for the London Review. I've been reading his little books. You know, they're really incredible, like twisty analysis of various things. Like the one I really liked was called Attention Seeking. And it was an analysis of the uh, psychology of the idea of needing attention. And I've been poking around. I mean, like, for example, yesterday I read, um, I was watching football and I read uh, Visions of Gerard by D- Jack Kerouac while I was watching, and I, I you know, so I, I read that. I read that because I read um, when I had COVID a couple of weeks ago. I read James Baldwin, The Fire Next Time, which I had read years ago. And then when I was poking around in that anthology, I read this essay called uh, I think it's something like A White Boy Talks to a Black Boy or something like that. It's about Norman Mailer, and he mentions Kerouac in that essay. So. Right. I kind of, I've been weaving around a lot. That's, that's basically it. I love the image of watching football while reading Kerouac. I mean, he played football at Columbia, right? Yes. Yeah. It, it makes total sense. I, I read a lot watching football. I do too. And baseball as well. Yeah. I mean, but baseball is even easier. You can kind of zone out for a long time and just go to it and, and then come back, you know. I actually, you know, I had in my notes to ask you about Kerouac already, so it's funny that you brought him up. Um, you know, I saw in a Vanity Fair piece you wrote a few years ago uh, where you recommended some books. The Kerouac came up. Big Sur, I think, was the one you recommended there. And I noticed in a, a video interview with you by somebody else that you had a photo of Kerouac, I think, on your wall. I think I did. Yes, I did. At, at the time, maybe. So what is it about Kerouac? Well, I think, you know, reading the Baldwin piece um, about Mailer, he mentions Kerouac and the you know, the some of the extremely racist sort of tropes that go through parts of Kerouac where he's like, you know, uh, trying to um, tap into the jazz slash, mm. you know, African-American experience. And, you know, it made me think because later in, in notes of it, in The Fire Next Time, he, uh, Baldwin is talking about the need for exuberance and, um, you know, enjoy. And he talks a lot about love. And I feel like what uh, his criticism of Kerouac was totally justified. And at the same time, I I feel like what Kerouac was doing was searching for a kind of way into exuberance mm. as a white male writer. And, you know, I don't want people to get me wrong. Uh, I have a hugely problematic relationship with, with Kerouac. I don't go around saying that Kerouac is great, blah, blah, blah. And I never bought into the on the road thing, you know, when I was yeah. in high school, I was yeah. actually an old man when I was in my twenties. <laughs> <laughs> I've been getting a little younger as I go along, but <laughs> 
you know, I just I think I think he has these moments of um, um, prose poetry where where his exuberance and his precision, you know, unite into something profoundly brilliant and beautiful. But it's hugely messy and scattered and and misogynistic. So, yeah, I don't I don't go completely 100 percent Kerouac, but um you know, he's he's I think I have a picture of him in my office because um, they were filming a movie near my house here and they threw out this prop that was a framed photo of Jack Kerouac. And I just oh, grabbed. That's <laughs> funny. <laughs> he also sort of was guilty of, I think, I don't know what the word is. I guess the word would be othering um, people from Mexico in a lot of his writing, I think. Oh, totally. Totally. You know, I mean, he was of his time. That is no justification for, you know, the, the quality of his work or anything. But he also had this, he was French-Canadian, he had the complexity of identity and becoming first-generation, I guess he was first-generation American. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like Saul Bellow, who also had that complexity of coming from Canada. And uh, I was reading that Saul Bellow's um, you know, Saul Bellow wasn't even a citizen until, rel- I don't know, maybe in his 20s, he actually became an, a citizen. And his father never became a citizen, but was totally devoted to the United States and the country. And both those writers kind of uh, seem to resonate in a similar way, trying to capture this exuberance and a bilingual sort of approach to language, too. But, you know... So Kerouac's just one, I just read, it's a horrible book, but it has some like incredible moments in it. It's so tender, gentle and loving. And then I've been poking around in story collections and I've been teaching. So I've also had to read the books and the things that I'm teaching too at the same time. Yeah. What are you, what are you teaching this semester? Uh, I teach a freshman writing course that I always, uh, I always teach every year. And, um, you know, we just did Edgar Allan Poe, The Imp of the Perverse, and we're doing Bartleby the Scrivener right now. Uh, and, and then I have a senior writing seminar where we just did Akhil Sharma's um, book, Family Life. Oh, wow. Uh, which I've read a few times, and we're going to start doing some short stories next, so. What are some sort of evergreen short stories that you always teach? Or do you change it up every semester? I, I you know, I, I jump all around. It depends on whatever story. I, I tend to get obsessed with, a, like, for example, Catherine Mansfield wrote a story called Bliss that I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with. So I keep teaching it over and over again. And, you know, they, the, the students don't know why I'm so excited about this story but it's it's like a it's it's like a i i always tell them it's like a professional if you know tennis and you're watching tennis and you watch serena williams do this incredible shot and if you really know tennis you're just like that was freaking unbelievable and i feel that way about for example bliss by Catherine mansfield just the way she executes the story and you know the complicated way that it works mm. what's it about uh, it's about this um this Australian woman who's married, you know, in, inside this marriage, and then she feels this uh, attraction towards this other woman. And, you know, it, at the very end of the story, there's a, there's a, 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 I guess you could call it a twist, where she sees that her husband is having an affair with the woman that she ha- has this almost transcendental sort of mystical attraction towards. Mm. You know, like any short story, it's just a little, like, tiny little tweak that resonates um, in, the, in the whole story. Another story that I'm going to be teaching is A Good Man is Hard to Find, which I've read, you know, a million times. Yeah. By, by Flannery O'Connor, for those who might not know. Flannery O'Connor, you know. And that's another example. I mean, I haven't read all of Flannery O'Connor because I can't handle it. You know, it's like... Yeah. <laughs> It's too much, so I've only read maybe ten, <laughs> 10 of her stories. So I'm, I'm poking around all, all over the place. Okay. I'm curious about Adam Phillips. Um, if I were going to start with him, what, is there something you recommend? Well, somebody was just telling me that his, he writes, they're very short books. They're brilliant, and they weave all around. The one that maybe you could start with is called Missing Out in Praise of the Unlived Life, which came out, I guess, a couple of years ago. And, you know, the t- it, it sounds like a self-help book, 
sort of, but it's way not a self-help book. It's really about like the part of our lives that we don't live, that we sort of feel like we should have lived. Mm. You know, that feeling of, um, I could have gone this path, but I went that path. And I'm just glancing, you know, it talks about John Berryman. It weaves all around. It's just this brilliant, brilliant sort of literary uh, slash psychoanalytic thinking. That's interesting that Berryman would come up there. Yeah, I just think, I think he's early on. This might just be me, but I actually bumped into a bookstore owner who felt the same way. These are the kind of books that you read and you're just like underlining stuff and you're like, this is brilliant and it's making me reconfigure my thinking. And then when you finish the book, you're like, I don't remember anything that I just read. (laughs) That's the kind of book. And and you're sort of like, wow, the bravado was incredible, and um, but I don't know what just happened to me. I have retained nothing. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I had a similar experience recently. I've been preparing for a series of podcast episodes about Freud, so I've been reading a lot of Freud. (laughs) And I'm feverishly highlighting and underlining, and then I'm like, "What, what was he talking about? Exactly. This is all Freud. It's it's he's a Freudian psychoanalyst and Oh, okay. And so but he also like makes it really clear that Freud is a you know obviously a storyteller and that Freud is building this narrative that is obviously just Freud's narrative. And and I forget when, but he definitely critiques Freud in a lot of ways too. He mm-hmm. he gets in there and, and he's not afraid to um he's not worshiping Freud. He's just he's he's just using him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You kind of brought up a, another gap in my reading that I've always kind of felt guilty about, which is Saul Bellow. I've never read Saul Bellow. Yeah, I've read all of Bellow, and I know he is also problematic in so many ways, but um, you know, he's I, I guess you go through these phases where a certain writer is sort of supporting your supporting you as a as a you know when you're trying to make your own work, and you, you know this was maybe 20 years ago that I went through my series Saw Bellow phase, and probably because my father also liked Saw Bellow, so maybe I just picked up on it from him. Mm, right, um, right. Do you have a favorite Bellow or an entry point for Bellow? Wow, that's a really hard question probably sees the day as a little short novella. Any of his early books, not the early, early books, I'm forgetting the titles of the, the, the first two. I just think that, what was the one? I can't remember the name of the one about the professor, uh, the big one that won all the prizes. Um, see, I basically don't even remember the titles, so that shows how much <laughs> <laughs> to me. <laughs> but you know that they were important to you. Yeah, I, what's the first big one? Is it Herzog? Herzog is brilliant, dated, but pretty incredible in terms of um, making you think. But the one, the the big one, and I'm really embarrassed that it's no, no, don't worry about it. the Adventures of Augie Mart. Yeah, that's that's the kind of book. That's an amazing book, and until you get maybe to the last hundred pages, and then it's um, exhausting, and you, you know. But if you read. If you read the first half of that, uh, you get a complete sense of his style and his voice. It's the immigrant experience, uh, and it's uh, it's really this sort of voice, super intellectual, um, self-taught, uh, autodidactic um, voice in that book. Yeah, The Adventures of Augie March. I, I find it really scary that I forgot that. I'm going to blame COVID. <laughs> I'm going to start blaming COVID for everything that's going oh. on. What kind of a reader were you as a teenager? I read mainly science fiction a lot, and um, but but also a lot of a lot of stuff on biology and plants and uh, and you just, you know anything I could get my hands on. But it was for maybe for a few years, it was a lot of science fiction. I'm assuming since you said your father was a Bellow reader that you grew up in a house that valued reading. I did. I grew up in a house with with a tremendous number of books. My father was a professor, a sociology professor, but he was also a um, minister and had a degree of divinity, too. So Mm. lots of books and lots of sociology, lots of uh, trips to uh, I'm working on something now, but I would. And, and I was describing how my father took me um, to um, some paper mill worker's house 
uh, to, he was a friend of his and I, he would take me to places. Um, he was also sort of a civil rights, um, activist early on. And, uh, so I just was exposed to a lot of things, having somebody that was interested in, in sociology, just, I was just kind of taken different places. Yeah. Yeah. What about your mother? Was she a reader? She was a reader, but, uh, not, uh, she was sort of a, a person of her time, a woman of her time. Um, I think, I think she she never sort of went over the curve to f- feminism and you know, oh, problematic, problematic. Um, I, I had a very complicated, problematic family, but she she read, she read. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of this was in in the context of a, a a lot of trauma and a lot of complexity. Let let me put it that way. Um, I see, I see, I see. I think my father and I think he had a an issue with sort of being a professor, um, being an intellectual. I think um, he didn't he didn't want to be really just he didn't want to be an intellectual intellectual. He just wanted to be a a person who was. I guess the way I would put it is on the street, you know, um, in, in, in the world, something like that. Was that a class consciousness sort of thing? I, I think so. Big time, big time. Yeah. I think it took me a long time to even start admitting that I had a father who was a professor and a reader because I wanted my stories to sort of stand on their own away from any um, context of where I came from. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I think that that feeling came out in part from, you know, the the feelings that I got from him, mm. if, if that makes sense. I think so, yeah. And you said he was a minister. Which which denomination? Um, congregational. Oh, you don't hear that very often. No, and he went to BU Seminary, and I've written about this. He, he, was, uh, he knew Martin Luther King. This was in the 50s. They were both doing their PhDs or whatever degree they were, I guess, degree of divinity. So they were both uh, working there at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, I think he he went back to being a minister uh, as soon as he retired from teaching. So he went back. Were, were, were you a believer as a kid, or are you still a believer? I was a, def, I was a believer uh, with a lot of problematic believer. Um, hmm. I think I'm still a believer. Um, but maybe not the way uh, people think right. when they hear a believer. Is there a spiritual element to writing for you? I, I definitely think so, but it's more of a sort of physical um, element, a sense of, it's a, there's a physicality to it, uh, this sense of reaching out and imagining and in, in a really physical way. Um, and, and that includes the sort of sense of when I'm doing revision, the, that a story is, uh, that there's a physicality to, to the structure of the story and to the, the story itself. That might not make sense. But it's sort of a, it, it might sound a little too mystical, but. Well, it does sound mystical, but that's what's appealing about it to me, I think, you know. <laughs> I, I think I, to go back to Adam Phillips, like, you know, he talks about audacity and shame and how whenever you're audacious, you're going to feel shame. I forget why, but that's basically mm. what he says. And I think there's an audacity to trying to create and trying to write. And there almost has to be a spiritual sense of that audacity or that desire to go outward into other imagined existences. So that is a spiritual thing that is lacking in, a, in, in some literature, you know, that some contemporary publications, it's just like um, there's no spirit in there. There's no um, sense of the wider um, enigma of not just existence, but the fact that we all die, all that kind of stuff. read that you studied poetry in college. Yeah, I started started as a poet. How did your family feel about you going to school for poetry? Well, originally for a, I was sort of pre-med and English uh, as an undergrad mm. and I had some support from my family, but 
in the early days, not a lot, especially for being a poet. There was more a sense of, uh, okay, you know, what is this? How are you going to make a living? All that, all that stuff. Yeah, of course. Who were some of your favorite poets when you were a student in undergrad? I would definitely say Walt Whitman was, was my, uh, was my main poet. I, I loved Whitman and, um, Philip Levine was huge for me. I don't know if you've read Philip Levine. Um, I haven't actually. No. What's he like? He's kind of a, uh, well, he, he was pretty big. He won the National Book Award a couple of times. He had worked in the factories in, in Detroit. And so he's kind of a working slash industrial poet. Yeah, they're really, his great poem is called um, What Work Is. Hmm. Um, you know, and it's like, you don't know what work is unless you've stood in the line at, uh, you know, waiting for a job application. And it's, um, yeah, just you, if you Google Philip Levine, you'll find a lot of his poems. And, uh, you know, I went to him when I was a young poet and I met him and he was supportive and sort of gave me a sense that I could keep doing this. And then in, in graduate school, I had um, Dennis Johnson was a teacher, Stanley Kunitz. Oh, wow. Was that at Columbia? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Johnson was my professor, for, you know, teacher for a, uh, that probably gave me at least the most sense that I could keep going somehow. I was super insecure, super isolated, feeling very strange being in New York after growing up in the Midwest, just a lot of anxiety. And, uh, mm -hmm. and he was kind of, fuck he, he, I think he had just come out of rehab and, he really was slack, and a lot of students were upset with him, but I, I thought he was pretty incredible. Um, this was before he was the Dennis Johnson that we know now. You know, yeah. he, he had published Angels and then Poetry, and it was before Jesus' Son came out. Okay, okay. Had you read Angels at that time? I think I read part of it. I didn't like it back then. I was like, okay, but, you know, and I, I don't even know if I liked his poetry that much at that time, um, yeah. but— I read it years later, and I, I thought it was an amazing book. Yeah, it's incredible. That's what a what an opportunity you had to study with him. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of you know he. I wrote about this before, but he kind of put his arm on my shoulder and said something like, you know, keep going. Um, I wrote a poem called something like Shoulder Blades. You know, I want to be your shoulder blades or something. I just remember like that huge anxiety of putting this thing in front of a bunch of people and then feeling yeah. humiliated. And he was like, no, no, it was good. You know, like, just keep, keep going. Like, don't, don't give up. Yeah. Well, that's really sustenance to a young writer. That's all you need. That's all you need. You know, that's, that's, that's all you really need when you're a young writer. You just need somebody to uh, acknowledge and, and, and give you a little bit of hope. Right. Was that one of your first experiences with that, or did you have good teachers in undergrad as well? I only did a uh, one creative writing one one creative writing poetry class as an undergrad, and then I I did do a um, senior like thesis, and I had a a really good teacher, really good professor. Um, so I spent my senior year of college basically writing poetry. I see, I see. And um, with Johnson, just before we move away from him. Was this strictly a workshop, or did he assign any reading to you guys? I can't remember what we read. I remember he came in and he would read like Lou Re Lou Reed lyrics to us, or he would read us from Melville, and mm. um, you know. And then later, what, what's funny is later I I got to know him a little bit later in my you know through writing, and um, the year that Tree of Smoke won the National Book Award. I was one of the judges, so I mm. kind of had a point of contact there, which I thought was really weird. Then I reviewed one of his books for the Times. And then finally, when he was um, he was supposed to come and, and speak at, at Vassar, I had invited him to come as a visiting whatever, and he was going to come. And then he, he, he died right before he, he came. So oh, wow. Was, yeah. What was the book you reviewed for the Times? Um, nobody move. I think it was called oh, it was his, 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 his noir sort of, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. His, yeah. And I, I sort of compared it, I think to Andrew, like an Andy Warhol pop thing, um, mm. you know, um, meant to be this sort of glittering piece, I guess. Um, 
I liked it. I didn't love it, but I liked it. I remember. Yeah, I felt the same way. Um, thinking of that book and um, and of your your you mentioning that you read a lot of science fiction as a teenager, I'm wondering. I always wonder what writers think about the distinction between like so-called genre fiction and so-called literary fiction. I don't completely buy into that idea that there are no genres or that it's all good. You know, um, mm-hmm. I think with with science fiction, sometimes it's just a brilliant, great book, and sometimes, in in then ninety percent of it is, uh, for me, sort of passive entertainment, um, not quite thick enough, not quite deep enough, um, not enough whatever that I that I want. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm not, I definitely don't feel this uh, sense of like, you know, science fiction is not important or not good or not whatever. Yeah. What science fiction was important to you when you were a kid? I really liked like Isaac Asimov and Ben Bova and uh, Hmm. these sort of really um, Orson Scott Card and and just science fiction that was sort of almost technical. And, but I did read Dune. I read the whole Dune thing one summer. Wow. That's an undertaking. And I remember being like um, perplexed and confused, but feeling very, feeling kind of the way I felt later when I read Ulysses, just like, wow, I did it, you know? Uh-huh. I got yeah. through it. That's that, um, that infinite jest feeling. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How did the transition for you from poetry to short stories work? Were you always writing both or, or was there a marked sort of sea change thing going on? There was definitely a marked change. I, I don't know. I, I remember I basically felt this impulse to, you know, break away from poetry. It seemed um, like such a bitter, nasty world to me back then. Uh, everybody was so competitive for space. And I just, uh, so I just started writing stories and I had to, I had to basically uh, teach myself my own way to do it involved back then a lot of cutting and pasting literally cutting and pasting like printing stuff out with a dot matrix printer and then cutting things and moving them around um, and trying to figure it out mm. you know my first book uh, came out I think uh, and uh, it's out of print now because it was basically kind of an apprenticeship where I was figuring things out I also just felt that you know I don't know what I needed to do and say was or what I you know was going to be in the narrative form longer longer form stories mm-hmm, mm-hmm. did you was there reading that was important for you was there were there sort of models that you followed or people that you emulated at first I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of copying early in a writer's career sometimes totally I I think it was Raymond Carver oh right because Carver Carver you know was one of the and Cheever and, and this um, writer, James Purdy, who I got to know and, and was sort of an underground writer at the time, not really underground. He had a moment of an intense popularity and fame, in the, I think, in the late 50s. There's a book by him that I love. Maybe you can remind me because I'm forgetting the title. It's sort of a love triangle between three men. That sounds like all of his books. Almost. Is it? Okay. <laughs> um, well, it, it could have been In a Shallow Grave. House of the Solitary Maggot, they're like, you know. Wow, what a title that is. Yeah, I can't, I don't know which, it could have been, but seriously, it could have been a couple of his books. Um, okay. But I really liked his style, I liked his voice, and um, so I wrote some stories in, in, in sort of James Pur- Purdy mode, I guess, and some stories in a Raymond Carver mode. It's it. You're right, I mean, young writers, basically, you're just going to, you know, uh, imitate as much as you can, I think. And that helps, that, 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 that helped you in learning how to write. Absolutely. I think there's such a like quest for authenticity with young writers, and, and that's just not the way to go. You know, just um, you're, you're not going to be authentic. Plus, what is authenticity anyway? It's a problem. Um, one thing I think young writers need to do is feel um, the entitlement to sort of a sense of using their own um, material and voice. And, you know, they have to find that, that sense that it's okay to just use 
and, and use what works for you. Right. Because so, so much of becoming a writer is just figuring out what you can't do and then doing what you can do. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And there's a great deal of vulnerability involved, I think, too, that people have, a, have some trouble with. Huge, huge. Was that, a, was that a roadblock for you? I don't know. I, I mean, again, going back to the audacity thing, I think I just felt like I didn't feel entitled. I just felt this cockiness back then, like, you know, I'm going to fucking be a writer and I'm going to do it, you know? Yeah. Um, it was, it's ridiculous, the, the feelings that you can have of just being like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just do this. You don't even think of the odds or the, the logistics of it. You just go and start cranking stuff out. Yeah. I mean, not everybody does. I think people who are destined to be writers do, but you're, you're, you know, you're lucky that way. You're special that way, I think. <laughs> I think it, it, it was luck. I had, I had, you know, I was, I was married really young, but I, I was married to somebody who was encouraging. Mm. Uh, and then I made friends with another writer who was a little bit ahead of me in ter- in the sort of spec um, pecking order or whatever it is. And, and he, he encouraged me a lot too. So it kind of, um, hmm. yeah. Is that somebody who I would know? Yeah. It's well, it, I've been friends with Jonathan Franzen for a long time. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. We're, we're completely sort of, uh, different in so many ways, but you know, he's been really loving and supportive all the way along. We've been sort of back and forth for years and, um, Mm. You know, I had to watch, like, I, I still watch while his public persona is one thing. And then, you know, when I hang out with him, I, I'm in another zone, I guess, or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's been just this unbelievably stable presence in, in my life in relation to the work, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does he read early drafts of your work? And do you guys feedback that way? Uh, for years, he read almost everything, every early draft. And then I would get this, um, you know, you, I knew what I was going to get, um, you know, this sort of like, well, I don't think that, you know, he would give me this sort of hardcore feedback. And uh, and then I would take it or leave it, um, but or usually or sometimes write around it or figure out like, okay, you know, he, I see what he's saying here. Right. Now that we're both older and he's, you know, who he is, like sometimes he'll not like something and I'll just be like, I'll, I won't really revise or respond. I'll just send it out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been, you know, it's complicated because have, trying to avoid envy, you know, having a, a friend who becomes like this, you know, when the corrections came out and it, he became... Uh, this sort of public figure and I just had to sort of completely put aside any sense of uh, competition or envy or any of that stuff and just, uh, you know, enjoy and enjoy what was happening with his, with his work. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool that you can acknowledge that that was something that was going on though. Yeah. I was really aware of this sort of what envy can do. I mean, literary friendships are, really complicated and hard anyway. And I was like, I'm not going to go there with, 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 I'm not going to let the envy take over, you know? Yeah. Do you have a favorite friends in novel? I think maybe Crossroads, the, the more recent one. Oh yeah. Okay. I haven't read it yet. Just because I, I felt like I, he was, he was relaxing a little bit and the pyrotechnics were dialed down and he didn't, he doesn't have anything to lose anymore, whatever. So he just, sort of is spinning out this long narrative that's going to go three books, I guess. So, but, you know, like we're completely different kinds of writers. And I, I think we're, um, you know, I don't even know if I would have picked up Crossroads if on my own, you know, I'm not sure if it's the kind of book I would have picked up on my own. Mm. Um, that's the really incredible thing. It's like, uh, <laughs> That's how it works, you know, when you're friends with somebody who's creating stuff. You're like, um, you have this bridge between you that you go back and forth across. And if, if, if you didn't have that bridge, if you didn't know them, maybe you wouldn't even be reading their work at all.
What's your daily practice like and has it evolved over time? I'm not a very disciplined writer. I try to work a little bit every day. And when I'm working on a story that I feel good about, I can maybe go in for a few hours every day and really, you know, work. Um, I usually write by hand for the first draft. So I'm often go off to a coffee shop or something and and start writing. And then revision, I used to revise like, you know, a story maybe a hundred times, whatever needed to be done, but I don't, I don't revise as many times anymore. So I'm not kind of, I'm not totally disciplined, but I'm always kind of generating and working on some, some kind of story. Do you work on more than one at a time? Yeah. I, I often have like four or five in progress and sometimes a story will be in progress for five, 10 years. You know, I'll mm. have it in a folder and I'll pull it out and, and look at it and then put it back, pull it out again, do some revision. Um, it's a ridiculous process, no matter <laughs> what. <laughs> it's really ridiculous. Yeah. Is that unusual for a story to gestate that long? Not for me. I mean, you know, it's pretty much the norm. I mean, not all of my, you know, uh, five years is a long time, but, you know, a year at least. Sometimes I I will actually sort of get something that works, works the first, not the first time, but in within three or four revisions. And then I'll be like, okay, it's really weird. Again, it goes back to what I was saying about the physical. It's almost like I, I feel like I have to sort of like respect whatever it is the story's trying to do, uh, wants to be, um, and get as close as possible to, to what the story, you know, is trying to do. And that can take a long time. That's so interesting to me when writers talk about the work, you know, the story, or even the characters being things that are sort of, um, that have their own minds or that are out of their control in a way and that tell the writer what to do. Yeah, I never really feel that it's, yeah, don't get me wrong, because I never feel that mystical, like where the story's doing, you know, out of my control. It's it's more like um, carving away, chipping away at something um, that's already that that I've already made, and you know, putting it under a lot of pressure and scrutiny to sort of make sure I I know what it is. And it's really different for each story that I write, so it's a different process for every story that I I end up writing. It's just I. I don't do it the same way each time because each story is so different. Mm. Is there a typical way for stories to start for you, though? Is there like, is it, is it a line? Is it a character? Is it an image or a setup? Uh, it's usually a combination of stuff. Um, you know, like I, for example, I wrote a dog story from a dog's point of view, which basically came Carmelita, which came out of my have owning a dachshund for 14 years and um, um yeah that story broke my heart man i i know it just that came out of just you know wanting to write from a dog's point of view and just sort of following the dog as it got lost and then and then so you know i also thought okay i should write a cat story now <laughs> <laughs> so like that's the impetus so i thought a cat story and i began writing about a, a cat um that lives with a couple in chicago in south chicago near obama's house huh. drawing upon personal stuff my my daughter's cat and i'm working on that story right now i'm i'm not sure if i can make it work or not i've written like 10 different drafts of it and um it never really gets into the cat's point of view and so I don't really have to do that, but they, the, the two people who are in the story are trying to imagine what the cat's point of view is. Mm. Cats are more inscrutable than dogs, I think. <laughs> they are. They are. They're less human. Yes. They're more animal than, than dogs. So. Definitely. But sorry, I interrupted, I think. You were going to say, you said so. No, so I, you know, I don't know. That's, that's just the process. Um, for each story, it's different. I'm really interested in, there, there are a couple of stories, I think maybe three in the new collection that have sort of different formats from the others. I'm thinking of, um, let's see, the title story, Two Nurses Smoking, and um, let me look here, Lightning Speaks and The Depletion Prompts. They're, they're in this sort of like modular structure, if that makes any sense. Would, would, would you agree with that? And, and, and is that a different kind of story for you to write? Is that, am, I, am I making sense? 
Yeah, you are totally. Okay. Yeah. I, but, but then I, you know, when I think back to all my stories and earlier stories have different structures that are not quite as modular or not quite as broken up as, as those stories. Um, yeah. Two nurses smoking has always sort of, I, I'm not sure exactly if I can articulate why it has that structure. Um, I think I liked using sort of a word as a title for for each section mm-hmm. and and sort of pulling the reader along as they read the story and and sort of so that they have a a physical sense of of go of being pulled through it. And it's, you know, it it can't be arbitrary. You can't just fuck around and break things up. It has to be in in inherent and twisted in with the with what the story is tell the story that's being told. So with Lightning Speaks, I I broke that up. I felt like it was an, a point A to point Z story originally, and I always want a sort of sense of going from point A to point Z. Mm. Uh, but with that story, um, she's as I wrote it, I discovered that she's in a in the Michigan State Mental Hospital, and. And as soon as she was in the hospital and she met another character, I felt like when I was revising, I felt like this is um, not linear. She's moving back and forth in time. She's, she's, you know, she's making her, her, her way of, her thinking is not linear. Right. And this is not a linear story. Uh, with the depletion prompts, I just started writing these prompts um, and just kept going. So that just, that just happened that way. That one is fun. That was that was fun to write and to sort of feel like okay, I'm, this is what I'm doing. Okay, and then in the next one, I was like, oh, okay, here's where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going here. Um, you know, the great thing about short stories is like you you do it, you can probe. You you're a sort of journey person. You can kind of wander and you can poke and probe around. Uh, get in. And then safely get out. Right. You can't do that with a novel. Yeah. Yeah, a novel must be so much... Is it, is it immersive in a different way to write a novel? It's easier, I think, in a way, because you're just sort of... You just keep swimming, and you're just like, okay, keep going. And, and then you can go back and, like, tweak and, and, and fix things and, and re- fill in where, where you need to fill in a ditch that's a little too deep or whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, with a story you don't have time you, you you gotta like it's it's a one-shot deal and you know if it doesn't work it's catastrophic i mean if a story fails it just enfolds on itself and it's dead wow yeah that's the way i feel it's like you know and how how frequently does that happen to you do you have to abandon something maybe one out of every three wow wow and it's not that I abandon it. I, I don't really. I just sort of let it um, stay in the um, <laughs> stay in the folder. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think anything's ever wasted or anything. So um, I just put it away, and you know, hope another day it'll it'll start to work. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you've written about being influenced by photography and photographs. I was wondering how that works for you. I, yeah, I think photography is just so inherently close to the short story form. Mm. You know, the, the short story is obviously just a glimpse. It's uh, there's a stasis to it because the reader feels that like, OK, in 10 pages, I'm done with this thing. So they, they definitely feel the physicality of the end ahead. Um, so I've always just felt like that there's a, um, a closeness to the two. And also with any any visual art where you're just standing and looking at a painting or looking at something, uh, you're just, it, there, to me, there's a sense of a connection between the two. Yeah. An interesting thing for me about the difference between observing art or reading a story is that when you're looking at a photo or a painting, you decide how long you're going to spend with it, you know, whereas with writing, the writer has decided how long you're going to spend with it. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's a... <laughs> I mean, they're they're not the same, obviously, and they're, uh, but st- I still just think that that something about uh, photography is uh, 
just that glimpse of somebody on the street, street photography, you know, the look in their eyes. There, there's just a, a little bit. Of, there's always an inherent sense of story in it. Absolutely. Yeah. Even in like Jeff, is it Jeff Wall? Does he do the, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, with his sort of constructed constructed narrative photographs where he puts things in certain places. Cindy Sherman. Mm-hmm. Very constructed, yeah. I was always like really amazed that Cindy Sherman like um, does all of her work herself and alone. Um, at least I think I read that somewhere or heard her say that she 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 does basically her own stuff and it just felt like that's sort of what a storyteller does you know you just sort of alone and you're just there's an aloneness with it um yeah yeah and you click you have one photograph maybe and that's it (laughs) (laughs) i did read that um nan golden's uh, ballad of sexual dependency was particularly influential or inspirational to you huge tell me about that a little bit uh, for those who don't know, maybe you could describe what the body of work is like. You know, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Well, I think Nan Golden is kind of an intimate, personal photographer, you know, catching glimpses, I guess, of her her life, um, which sounds basic and cliched, but, but it, it seems that her life is full of people on some kind of edge or margin and you know, I just feel like when I, I think I was in Chicago at the Art Institute and I bought, and I, it was a big book. It's not The Ballad of Sexual Dependency. It's some, it's another book. Um, and I bought it. It's a big, huge book. And I just, you know, felt this resonance with, with, with her photos. Um, beyond that, I can't, I can't really articulate how, why I feel so strongly about her work. Do you um, feel like her characters could, it could be some of your characters? Definitely. Uh, at the point that, uh, you know, in the time that I was looking closely at her work and writing certain stories, um, huge, you know. I mean, I have family members on both sides of my family who are have had addiction problems with heroin. And I've had, you know, I've been in and out of mental institutions not myself, but visiting family, mm. uh, close family. I've been in emergency rooms and all of that. And um, but there's more to her work. It's like uh, um, the the out, the beauty of of her photo, of her photography and the um, and the and the sort of texture and the taste of them. It's just like it just fed me for a while. This was sort of seems like it was before the internet was overtaking life you know so you would literally buy a book of photographs and that was kind of it yeah 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 i work in an art bookstore now part-time and sometimes i wonder um whether instagram and and social media is gonna make a certain kind of photography obsolete and how sad it would be if that happened yeah it's sad because when you would pick up a book of photos again in the solitude without the internet and just sort of move through it Flipping the pages, stopping, lingering—it it fed you in a in a completely different way than the internet does. You know, the smell of the ink, the mm-hmm. beauty of the book, all of that stuff. Yeah. Also, there's a thrill in finding an object and feeling like you had to do some work to get it. Kind of. If that makes any sense. Yeah, you had to locate it. Um, I can't get over to my bookshelf to find the title of the Nan Golden book. You know, finding it in Chicago at the gift shop, right? Like I had been looking for it for a while and I just buying it at that moment in time was, was really important. Like Robert Frank, the Americans, like just Mm. holding, holding the book. This is back before we had the internet holding the book and just being like, wow, what is this? You know, and then moving through it. Yeah. The Americans is absolutely seminal. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, when I think of Nan Golden, this is kind of a reach, maybe. I don't know if you have read her, but I always think of Cookie Mueller. Have you read Cookie Mueller? No, no. Okay, we can skip that then. I, she's a, <laughs> I, I love her. What, what does she write? I know the name. She writes, well, she wrote. She's, uh, she died, actually, uh, I think of AIDS in, in 1987 or so. But uh, she wrote um, about her life. But the feel and the world of the work is very... It's a genre that I call mean hippie. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is like, um, you know, some Robert Stone is in there and some Dennis Johnson is in there and even like Linda Berry's Cruddy is in there. So it's it's a very sort of like marginal, sort of decadent kind of life, but also very uh, dangerous. Wow, wow. If that makes any oh. sense. I don't know, I kind of babbled for a no, moment. No, it does, it does. Cruddy, you know, is she, is, has she been photographed by Nan Golden? Is that why I know her name? Yeah, is Cookie it, is a close friend, was a close friend of Nan's, so she's all over the ballot of sexual dependency, for example. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Cruddy is such a great book. Cruddy is incredible. I mean, Cruddy is just, I, I've taught that book before, and the students are like, I have no no fucking clue why we're reading this. They, they're, they're like, <laughs> Um, I mean, they do, but it's so like over the top in the best way. Yeah. And the illustrations are like just incredible. And it's about, you know, identity, code shifting your identity. And it, it does so much. It's an amazing book. Yeah. For those who don't know, it's by the cartoonist Linda Berry. Um, and it's about a young girl who flees home and ends up, what is she's a talking switchblade at one point, I think. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> It's a it's a runaway story. It's a runaway story, which also reminds me of another mean hippie writer who uh, is uh, Catherine Dunn. Her early work. Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't know that term mean mean hippie. I like that. That's I'm pretty good. sure John Waters made it up, but I've kind of made it mean a little bit something else to what he means. Maybe. <laughs> it, it, it's you know like being um, being good enough to see the to to make bad art or, or something like. Uh, <laughs> Cruddy, Cruddy is great because she's like standing on the railroad tracks, like staring down the oncoming train, you know, it's like, and, and then there's an illustration of the, of the train light in the darkness. And uh, there's meat trucks, trucks with dead meat in them with lots of flies. It's Yeah, yeah. It's such a great book. And that's great that you taught it too. I wouldn't, I would never have thought to do that. Yeah, just, I just think I just threw it into the syllabus because I loved it so much and I just wanted to keep reading it and see it again, you know. I want to talk about class a little bit, but I'm not sure exactly how. Um, I'm interested in maybe the idea of class in America as it relates to reading and who's encouraged to read and who's not encouraged to read. Yeah. That's that's a really um, I think the essential question right now is even beyond that. It's um, because my wife is a fifth grade teacher and she's like a real devoted teacher. She's been teaching fifth grade for 30 years and she absolutely loves it. And she's like really afraid that in general, most kids are not reading Mm -hmm. and that they're they're basically like spending a lot of time playing video games and um not really being alone the way they used to be. I guess it is tied up with class too, because there's a certain group of people who are exposed to books in their family life and, or somehow, and they, 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 they become readers. I'm not sure. I think what's interesting, I just read a book uh, that I did a reading with Sadiq uh, Fafana. I'm not sure if I think I'm saying his name, right. Um, He wrote a book called stories from the, from the tenants downstairs. It's like a collection of stories written in sort of black vernacular, very intense, a little bit like John Edgar Wideman in style Mm -hmm. or Tony K. Babara. I'm only bringing him up because he's, there's a story in the book called the Okie Doke. That's just incredible. But I felt strongly that there was a review in the New York times that I think kind of completely missed the boat that focused on the language um, and being hard to, to work with. Mm. And then like, I, I sort of feel like people don't know how to read anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I just felt this feeling like, I don't know, I'm going off on a tangent, but it just felt like um, they don't, they don't know how to just feel what the deeper sort of implication of, of language uh, the way they used to. Maybe there's a reluctance to work as hard, maybe. Yeah, well, what do you think with the class thing? What's what's your theory? Well, that's the problem is I don't really have it fully formed yet, but I do believe that the working classes are not as encouraged to read as as you know, the upper middle class or the or let's say the upper middle class, let's stick with that. And I believe that there's perhaps a cynicism that builds up around reading 
uh, when you're not encouraged to read. Does that, I'm, I'm really feeling this out as I go. I know there's something there for me, but I'm not exactly sure. I come from a working class background and, um, you know, the only reader in my family was my grandfather who happened to go to college after, after World War II on the GI Bill. And he was very, he was kind of like emblematic of this for me because he was a steel worker, although he wanted to be an English teacher. Um, but he sort of couldn't transcend his class, I think, uh, even though he wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm ruminating a bit no, here. So this, sorry. This is, it's good though, because it ties in with Philip Levine, um, you know, the poet and, and other working class people. I grew up right, living right down the street from a paper mill. Mm. And the, the working people at that time, uh, and even earlier, I've been researching and reading a lot about steel mills in, in, the, in the 20s. You could be in a steel mill and, and you could be reading a book during your lunch break and no one would give you shit about it. Mm. And my theory about this is that there is a, a war against the imagination and that the right in particular, is is at war against the idea of the imagination. So somehow the idea of imagining whole cloth, some other thing, is suspect now. On, maybe on both sides of the spectrum, from the left to the right, on the far left and the far right, both sides are attacking this idea that the, the, the of the imaginative capacity mm-hmm. to go anywhere, anywhere you want to go, anywhere you need, need to go. And I just feel like back in the day, the people I grew up around, a lot of them were working people. They they still respected and believed in the imagination. Yeah, fascism is 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 always fighting against the imagination. You know, it's like. And why do you think that is? Why why does fascism want to squelch the imagination? Is it because it leads to freedom of thought? That that for that reason, but also just um, empathy and the capacity to be in the other and. Mm to, you know, daydream. Nothing worse than a daydream if you're a fascist. You know, you, you can't fuck that. I mean, right. you know, lying around and just sort of dreaming your way into other, other, other um, existences is not orderly, it's not structured, and it doesn't sell anything. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but that's, you know. I think it oh. makes a lot of sense. I think it makes a lot more sense than what I was kind of rambling on about. <laughs> no, you weren't rambling. <laughs> <laughs> no, it makes a lot of sense. I think actually you helped me to kind of coalesce what I've been thinking about because it is about imagination, I think. And 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 the escape inherent in imagination. And there's there's like a, an obsession with authenticity, which is justified in a lot of ways, but it's also a, a force that undermines this this cosmic huge capacity that we have you know um to just go anywhere and and that's the the hippie thing is something that i really um they had that right you know the idea that you can just sort of that you can drift and you can you can go places that you're not supposed to go john waters is a good example of that yeah yeah definitely between the elegance of him in his person, who he is in presentation to the real world, John Waters, the the sophisticated elegance, and then the the material of his imagined work, there's a space between those two things, and um, it's hard to negotiate that space for a lot of people. You know, who am I in public in relation to this thing that I'm creating? Yeah. And if in the and if it's a world of authenticity, then then there's always a, a, a fear that you're going to look inauthentic or whatever. It's, it's weird. Well, yeah, it is, and I, I can't help but think about turning that around on you and asking you, like, who are you in public in relation to the things that you make? Do you think about that the, the sort of persona of a writer? I, I used to think about it a lot more, where I. I was afraid, again, like to talk about my father, and I wanted to make sure that somehow I, you know, found a way to keep those two working together. And I think Dennis Johnson's a good example of this. Like, I knew him enough in a a little way um, to sort of know that he was in no way like fuckhead in Jesus' son. Maybe he had been at one time, but he wasn't anymore. He had a family. He had been divorced. He had kids. They were, you know, um, he was very good at curating and making sure that he didn't let out too much stuff. 
um, to break that persona that he had created. Yeah, I was wondering recently whether there ever will be a biography of him, if it's possible. I'm sure there will. Yeah. Somehow. Somebody will try. Right, right. And they'll dig around. They'll figure things out. But um, like Robert Stone had a biography and it was boring. There's really not much to say. I know. I read it. I liked his, his own memoir of the 60s was a lot more interesting. Way more interesting. I just have a couple more questions that are sort of arbitrary and small, just little things I was wondering. First off, what's your, what's your favorite story in James Joyce's Dubliners? I would say, well, the dead, you know, you just can't really get much better um, in terms of a longer story. It's just unbelievable. But I would say probably Araby still is, um, mm. you know, even though it, back in the day it was taught to death and it was sort of like, um, but it's just an unbelievable story. That's the one where the kid goes to the market to try to buy sort of a bobble for a woman, a girl he has a, a crush on, right? Yeah, and it's that's exactly right. It's a crush story, but it's also like that about like that one particular moment in existence where you go literally overnight from youth to something closer to adulthood, you know? Mm-hmm. It like literally happens in like one little paragraph, I guess, and then like there's a it, you know, where he is everything has been reconfigured for him. And he, you know, he, it's like, boom, it, it shifts. I remember there being a very powerful closing line to that story, but I can't remember. But it's, he's, he's like looking up into the rafters and he sees himself as a creature of vanity and shame or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's an epiphany moment. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. You know what's really great about James Joyce and Dubliners? It's like he wrote one great collection and then he stopped. Like, I'm like, that's right. the way to do it. Like, that's why it's so great, because he never wrote another another one yeah you know, it's fun. yeah that has a lot to do with it i think he wrote one you know he wrote ulysses and and you know finnegan's wake or whatever and 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 stephen hero and but he kind of knew when to stop that's a good thing is there a gold standard sort of of short story collections like if somebody has never delved into the short story world before as a reader is there something that you're like start here that's an i really can't answer that i i i I really can't. I, I feel like there's just an amazing you know, batch of great story collections out there. I, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I can't answer that. I understand completely. No, I think I think because I think you're I think you would want somebody to just sort of fish around in an anthology and find the voice that touches them and then seek out the collection. Yeah, that makes sense. I do think that, you know, Dubliners and uh, Good Man is Hard to Find, that collection, um, the way the stories resonate off of each other. Um, I mean, Self-Help by Laurie Moore. Oh, yeah. Clarice Lispector's stories, uh, you know, like, they're overwhelming because there's so many. But, like, if you could poke around in her work, George Saunders. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean. And, and all these writers you just named are so radically different from each other. Absolutely. Um, John Edgar Wideman, um, Danielle Evans has written good collection. Um, you know, you, you just go, uh, go all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. And you need check off too, of course. You gotta go, you gotta read check off. Gotta read check off. Definitely. <laughs> and Alice Monroe. Oh my God. I cannot like not mention Alice Monroe. You know, I haven't, I haven't read Alice Monroe. I don't know why I haven't read her yet. I need to. It's almost a cliche for a story writer to talk about Alice Monroe. But, is it? Um, Why is that? Well, because everybody, you know, she's a reference point, like us being sort of such an important, great writer. But um, she's seductively um, subversive mm. as a writer, mm. you know, I guess subtly subversive as a writer. Don't try this at home is what I always think when I'm reading her work. It's like wow. you can't really replicate it. Yeah. That's the thing about stories. There's a million There's a million great stories out there. Would you like to recommend some younger, up-and-coming short story writers who might not be as well-known yet? Well, I think, again, this story's from Tenants Downstairs, um, Siddiq Fafana, just out. It's, it's really interesting, really, really strong. Um, and I don't 
have the Danielle Evans is I don't know the name of her collection. Um, she's a pretty brilliant young writer, and I'll, that's th those two are the ones that I've been focusing on a lot. Thanks for listening, and thanks to David for his time and generosity. Again, please check out Two Nurses Smoking. It's available now from Farrar Strauss Giroux, a.k.a. FSG Books. This episode was reported by me from my home in Los Angeles while David was at his home just north of New York City. It was post-produced and edited by Justin Geller in Philadelphia and facilitated by Lars Kreslins, also in Philadelphia. The music is Bach, arranged and performed by Cyrus Germani, also of Los Angeles. You can find more Apology stuff at ApologyMagazine.com and on Instagram at Apology underscore Zine. Thanks for listening. See you next time.